I don't know what you are, Kittyara said through clenched teeth. Tears stung her eyes and froze on her cheeks. But you're not my father. My father is dead. That's why he never came back for me. He's dead. She lunged at the guardian with her sword. A horrible stench made her gag. A savage roar cut off the sound of her father's laughter. One moment Gregor was there, and the next she was enveloped by the stench, confronting an enormous being covered in filthy gray-white hair with huge arms and mauling paws. If it had eyes, she could not see them in the tangle of the hair. It had teeth, though, sharp fangs and a long, slavering tongue. She stabbed at the thing desperately and felt her sword bite into flesh. The thing roared again, this time in pain. Claws as long as swords slashed at her, raked across her. Kittyara gasped as the razor-sharp claws cut through the dragon armor, sliced neat as a razor into the flesh of both her forearms and across her midriff. She staggered back, blood dripping from the gashes. Fumbling at the shield that she'd slung over her arm, she lifted it up to protect herself and held her sword ready. She couldn't feel the pain, not yet, but she knew it would come any moment now, and she braced herself. She gathered her strength and was prepared to lunge again. At tennis. He stood in front of her, regarding her with loving concern. Kittyara blinked and squinched her eyes shut against the phantom, and it was then the pain hit her. She bit her lip to keep from crying out. Opening her eyes again, she saw Tannis still standing there. Kit, he said gently, you're hurt. He was as she remembered him, tall and muscular, with the strong arms and hands of a skilled bowman. He wore his hair long to cover the pointed ears that gave away his elven heritage. His smile was warm and wide, his chin strong and clean-shaven. Kit, said Tannis sadly, you didn't come to the inn. You broke your oath. We were all there, your brothers, Caraman and Raislin, and Tasselhoff and Flint. Sturm came, too, and I came. I came because of you, Kit. I came back for you, to tell you I'd made a mistake. I love you. I want to be with you, always. No, cried Kittyara, choking from the burning pain. She watched her own blood dribble down her legs and drip off her arms and splatter on the icy floor. I don't believe you, she shook her head angrily. I don't believe in you, whatever you are. Since you weren't at the inn as you promised, said Tannis, I assume that means you don't care about me. I care about you, said Kit, knowing this wasn't real, yet wanting it to be. It's just, I was busy. Ariakas made me a dragon high lord. I command an army. I've conquered nations. I have a war to fight. When you didn't come, I decided to love another. Tannis continued, as though he hadn't heard her. An elf woman named Lorana. I know, Kittyara cried angrily. You told me about her, remember? You called her a spoiled little girl. You said she was immature. You wanted a woman. I want you, Kittyara, said Tannis. And he held out his arms to embrace her. Get back, Kit warned the holy water. She had dropped the flask when the apparition attacked. The flask lay on the blood-covered floor at her feet. She made a grab for it, keeping her gaze on Tannis, holding out her sword. She lifted the visor of her helm and swallowed a gulp of the healing water. Her pain eased. Her blood stopped dripping. She had to attack it again. She'd hurt the thing once. 
She didn't know how badly, but she guessed that not all the blood covering the ice was her own. Attacking it meant she would have to go in close and brave the terrible raking claws again. She dropped the flask and lowered her visor and raised her shield. Gripping her sword, she ran at Tannis. The thing roared. The stench made her gag. She hacked at it with her sword, and the filthy white fur was drenched with blood. Flaming black eyes glared at her. Claws raked across her shoulders and her chest and down her thighs. The claws dug deep, piercing flesh. She heard and felt claw scrape against bone, and she shuddered from the rending pain. But she kept stabbing at the creature with her sword, and finally she felt the blade strike something hard and solid. Putting all her weight behind it, she drove the blade into the thing's hairy body, thrusting the blade deep, twisting it. The creature roared in pain and fury and slashed at her violently with the cutting claws. Blood sprayed across the visor and got into her eyes, half-blinding her. Kit yanked her sword free. She stumbled backward, and her feet slipped, and she fell. Her hand struck the ice, knocking loose her sword. The weapon slid out of her reach. She tried desperately to stand, but the pain was bad, very bad, and it was hard to breathe. Claws slashed down at her, and Kit rolled out of the way. She remembered the K-Pax sword, and she fumbled at it, yanking it out of her belt. She waited until the hairy beast roared down on her, and then, blindly, she drove the sword into its body, drove it through hair and flesh and bone. Blood flowed over her hands. A horrible bellow deafened her, and a gigantic fist struck, driving her to the floor. Kittyara found herself lying on her belly. She blinked her eyes, trying to clear the blood, and saw the flask just out of reach. She crawled toward it, reaching for it with a shaking hand. There was her mother. Rosamond lay on the floor, her hand on the flask. She gazed at Kittyara with her large, doe eyes that never seemed to quite focus on the present, but stared out at some hazy horizon no one could see but her. Your father didn't come home last night, Rosamond said accusingly. Kittyara cringed. Not again. The pain of her wounds was terrible, but it was nothing to the pain of the torture rack on which her parents had strapped her, pulling her between them whenever they fought. He was with that woman, wasn't he? Rosamond's voice rose shrilly. The one with the red hair I saw him flirting with at the market yesterday. He was at the trough, mother, drinking with his friends, Kit mumbled. She had to reach the flask. She crawled nearer, holding her sword, ready to strike. Don't lie for him, girl, Rosamond shouted, her voice rising to a shriek. He hurts you as much as me with his philandering. Someday he'll leave us both, mark my words. Kittyara sank down on the floor, her eyes closed in exhaustion. She saw her father with the red-haired bar wench. The woman had her back against the outhouse, her legs spread, her skirts hiked up. Gregor crowded close to her, nuzzling bare breasts. Kit heard the woman squeal and her father grunt, and the squeals blended with her mother's hysterical ravings. Kit pushed herself painfully off the red ice. She staggered to her feet. Lifting her sword, she plunged it into her mother's body, then drove it into her father's body. She kept stabbing and hacking at both of them until the roaring and the sobbing ceased and the thing quit twitching. Kittyara collapsed. She lay on the ice, staring at the blood-spattered ceiling. Her hand closed over the flask, and she tried to bring it to her mouth. I meant to come back, Tannis, she told him. The truth is, I forgot.
her hand fell limp to the icy floor. Thirteen. Recovery. Viewmaster Toad surpasses expectations. Kittyara fought on. Clawed hands had hold of her, and she lashed out in fury, kicking and hitting and screaming curses. Hold her down, a guttural voice ordered angrily. I'm trying, sir, panted another. Bennick, sit on her feet. Rolt, pour more water down her throat. A heavy weight immobilized Kit's lower limbs. Strong hands seized her wrists and prized open her jaws. Someone poured water into her mouth. The water went down the wrong way, and Kittyara choked. Gasping for air brought her back to consciousness. She opened her eyes and saw monstrous faces leering at her. She couldn't move, and she tensed to fight. Then the mists cleared, and she realized the faces were covered in scales, not fur, and none of them were faces from her past. They were K-Pak faces, and the lizard men had never looked so wonderful to her as they did now. You can let go of me, she mumbled. The commander regarded her warily, then gave a nod of his head. The K-Pak who had been sitting on her legs got up, groaned, and limped off. Apparently she had need him in a sensitive spot. The two K-Pak soldiers who held her wrists backed off. What about the Guardian? Kit asked. Dead, said the commander. Kit nodded thankfully and closed her eyes to let the dizziness pass. What was it? she demanded. Hard to tell, said the K-Pak. You hacked it to bits. Whatever it was, none of us had ever seen one before. Some foul creation of the wizards, said Kit, shuddering. You're sure it's dead? Very, replied the commander. Kittyara sighed and relaxed. She was not in pain, but she felt weak and trembly, and her brain wasn't working right. Her father had been there. And Tannis. But that wasn't possible. And the dragon orb talking to her... Kit's eyes flared open. The dragon orb, I have to save it. No, you don't, said the commander. Sleet's guarding the orb. Takesis's orders. You should rest. You've earned it. How long have I been out? Kit wondered confusedly. A week, said the K-Pak. A week, Kittyara repeated, staring at him in disbelief. The healing water closed your wounds, but you lost a lot of blood. Then a fever set in. We thought you were dead a couple of times. Her dark majesty must think highly of you. And you went to all this trouble to save me? Kit shook her head and noticed even that small motion exhausted her. Why didn't you just let me die? You Dracos don't have much love for humans. We don't like humans, the K-Pack agreed, but we don't like elves more. Kit smiled weakly. Speaking of elves, I'm surprised Fiel Fass didn't kill me. He hasn't been here with flowers, said the K-Pack dryly. In fact, he hasn't been here at all. He's holed up in that ice palace of his. Perhaps he doesn't know his guardian's dead. Oh, he knows, said the K-Pak. The Winternor knows everything. They say he can read minds. He's cunning, that one. He has as many twists and turns as a snake. If you want my opinion, 
He set you up to die. He wants you out of the way. One less rival. Kittyara thought this over. It made sense, as much as anything made sense around here. I guess I'll have to kill him, she said. Give me my sword. She tried to sit up. The K-Pack gave her a shove, and Kit fell back on the bed with a groan. Maybe I'll wait until tomorrow, she mumbled. The commander chuckled. I can see why you're a dragon high lord. And speaking of dragons, a blue has been hanging about, worried sick about you. He threatened to tear down the castle if anything happened to you. I never saw a dragon in such a stew. It must be Sky, good old Sky. Kittyara sighed deeply and contently. Tell Sky I'm all right, will you? And thanks, Commander, for everything. She rolled over on her side, hugged the fur blankets around her, and went to sleep. Two days and several caribou steaks later, Kittyara felt well enough to leave her bed. The first thing she did was to see for herself that the Guardian was truly dead. She ventured cautiously into the narrow tunnel, sword in hand. The blood, her blood, was frozen in the ice, but no corpse. The K-Pack had told her there wasn't much left of the monster, and now there was nothing at all. Fiel Thas must have removed the remains, either that or they'd disappeared on their own. Kit left the chamber where she'd almost died and continued down the tunnel to the dragon's lair, intending to discuss Ariacus's plan for the dragon orb. This did not go well, for Sleet proved to be every bit as dull and obtuse as Skye had predicted. The white dragon blinked at Kit with heavy eyelids, scratched her ear with a clawed foot, and tilted her head to the side, as if viewing Kittyara from that angle somehow made her instructions clearer. At length Sleet yawned, lay her head down on the ice, and closed her eyes. Do you understand what you're supposed to do? Kittyara asked, exasperated. I'm to guard the dragon orb, Sleet muttered. Guard it from Fiel Thas, said Kit. I hate Fiel Thas. The dragon's lip curled back over her teeth. When the Salamnic Knight comes, you... I hate Salamnic Knights, the dragon added, and rolling over on her back, she fell asleep with her legs in the air and her tongue lolling out of her mouth. Kit gave up and walked out. She hoped they all killed each other. Kit was ready to leave Ice Reach. She had decided against seeking revenge on Fiel Thas. Ariacus more than half suspected her of being complicit in the death of Lord Verminard. She didn't want the Emperor to think she was going about Ancelon on a quest to murder his High Lords. She would have her revenge on the elf, but in a time and place of her choosing, not his. She sent a message to Fiel Thas in his ice palace, saying she was leaving. His message back to her read, I didn't know you were still here. The Emperor was a fool to put a dark elf in charge of anything, Sky remarked when Kittyara told him her tale. Good elves are bad, but bad elves are worse. The two stood on a wind-swept ice field outside the castle walls. Kittyara was bundled in furs and held her hand over her eyes to protect against the blinding glare of the sun off the ice. She wondered irritably how a sun this bright could shed such little heat. 
You should go inside, Skye added. Your teeth are chattering. So are yours, said Kit, fondly stroking the neck of the blue dragon. Icicles hung off Skye's chin, making it look as if he had grown a hoary beard. I'm cold inside and out, said the dragon glumly. When do we leave this horrible place? I have to read those dispatches Ariakas sent first, see if he has any orders for me. She left the dragon stomping about the glacier, flapping his wings, trying to keep warm. The first dispatch she read was from Emperor Ariakas, informing her of victories in the eastern part of Crin. The High Lord Lucian of Takar now had half the continent under his control, or so Ariakas claimed. Kitiara ground her teeth as she read this. Salamnia would be under her control now if Ariakas had permitted it. As for Lucian, what had he conquered? Kender, elves, and goat herders. Bah! Ariakas said he hoped her meeting with High Lord Fiel Thas was going well. Kitiara growled deep in her throat at this. He expected her to send him a full report. Kitiara sat for a long while pondering the message. Something was wrong. Ariakas had never before written her anything as formal and stiff as this. The letter was not even in his handwriting. He had dictated it, always before he had written to her personally. There were many reasons why Ariakas might have dictated this message. He was fighting a war, trying to govern a large region, searching for the green gemstone man, dealing with an impatient goddess. Small wonder if he did not have time to write her a personal note. Still, Kit was bothered by this and by other small details. She had expected him to ask for her report in person, and he had instead told her to write it. He had said nothing about future orders. He had said nothing about Salamnia. Kitiara decided she would leave the Blue Wing to search for Tanis around Thorbarden. She would travel immediately to Naraka to find out what was going on. She rolled up the missive in a tight twist and held it to the flame floating atop the seal oil. She watched the fire consume it, dropping it only when the flame was about to burn her fingers. The next thirty or so dispatches were all from Fewmaster Toad. Kit glanced over them, grinning. They were copies of dispatches sent to commanders of the forces of the Red Dragon Army, containing orders that contradicted his former orders that countermanded his previous orders. Kitiara figured the commander simply tossed these away, which is what she was prepared to do, when she noticed that one was addressed to her. Kitiara settled down and prepared to enjoy it, figuring the inanities of the hobgoblin would at least give her a good laugh. The opening salutation did just that. Written in a hand certainly not belonging to the hobgoblin, it took up half a page and began by addressing Kitiara as... Most exalted, revered, and esteemed High Lord, honored among men and gods and nations. And it went on from there. She skipped over most of it to reach the main body of the missive, which began by describing the pleasure the Fewmaster had received from meeting her and expressing his ardent desire that he be permitted to polish her boots again the next time they met, which he hoped and prayed to her Dark Majesty would be soon. Then Kitiara's chuckle ceased. She sat bolt upright and reread the paragraph. My spies in Thorbarden report that those persons in whom you most graciously expressed an interest 
these being those assassins who murdered our much-beloved and deeply lamented Lord Verminard, may Chamash embrace him, have left the mountain fastness of the dwarves and are reportedly en route to Tarsus, trying to flee the justice they so richly deserve. Tarsus, murmured Kitiara, interested. She read on. Immediately upon receiving this news, I put out a bounty on these criminals, and I fully expect they will be captured soon. Knowing that your most gracious lordship was interested in seeing these miscreants brought to account, and for your lordship's further edification, I have included, here within, a copy of the bounty notice I drew up, complete with the names and descriptions of these assassins. I have sent these notices to the commanders of our illustrious forces in the region. I confidently expect to have these criminals under lock and key at any moment. Kitiara doubted if any of the commanders had even bothered to look at it. Of course, these criminals might not be Tanis and his friends. There were, by report, eight hundred human refugees holed up in Thorbarden. She fished out the notice that had been rolled up in the center of the High Lord's letter, and, her heart beating fast, scanned over the names. Her past seemed to leap out at her, as it had done in the chamber with the Guardian. Faces rose from the mists of time. Tannis half-elven, bearded half-elf, thought to be the leader. Of course, Kit thought to herself, as always. Sturm Brightblade, human, Salomnic Knight. Her tryst with Sturm had certainly not gone as planned. Flint Fireforge, dwarf. Grumpy old Flint. He'd never liked her much. Tasselhoff Burfoot, Kender. Hard to believe that little nuisance was still alive. Raislin and Caraman Majer. Human, wizard, warrior. Her little brothers. Half-brothers, really. They had her to thank for their success. Tika Whalen. Human. The name sounded familiar, but Kit couldn't place her. Elistan. Human. Cleric of Paladine. Dangerous rabble-rouser. How dangerous could the cleric of a weak god like Paladine be? Gilthanus, elf, Goldmoon, cleric of Mishakal. Yes, yes. Kit scanned past them impatiently. Where was the name she sought? Lorana, elf princess, capture alive. The elf female is the property of Fewmaster Toad and is not to be harmed, but should be sent back immediately under heavy guard to the Fewmaster. Reward offered. So here you are, Kit said, displeased, still with him. She stared hard at the name, as though she could conjure up a picture of her, blonde, slender, beautiful. Friends, family, lover, rival, heading for Tarsus. So, presumably, was Derek Crownguard. Her spies had told her he was going to Tarsus in search of some library. What if they met? Sturm and Derek were fellow knights. They undoubtedly knew each other. Perhaps they were friends. What would be the consequences if they encountered one another in Tarsus? Would Derek mention her name? Kit thought it over and didn't see why he should, yet the possibility that he might reveal he had seen her and talked to her was troubling. She wished she hadn't told him her real name. That had been a bit of bravado. Tarsus. A day's journey by dragon. Kitiara sat for a long time, gazing at the flames flickering in the bowl of seal oil, making plans. She did not forget Ariacus. Those who forgot Ariacus tended to live very short lives. He had to be appeased, kept happy. He had to be made to think that what she was about to do was being done for him. 
She smiled and shook herself from her scheming and went back to finish Toad's letter, expecting to be entertained by more evidence of the Hobbs' stupidity. Unfortunately, his stupidity did not prove to be that entertaining. Kittyara sucked in an angry breath that exploded in a curse. You bloody fool! She bounded to her feet, crumpling the letter in her hand. She started to hurl it into the flames, then checked herself. She made herself read it again, but it didn't improve the second or third time. She then threw it into the flames and watched it and all her plans go up in smoke. The idiot hobgoblin was going to attack Tarsus. She knew why. The red dragons were putting pressure on Toad to take them into battle, and although the hob's guts spilled out over his belt, he apparently didn't have enough to stand up to the dragons. Toad should be massing his forces to attack Thor Barden, concentrating on that. Instead, he was committing his forces to an assault on a city that had no military value and little wealth, a city he could not hope to keep. He simply did not have troops enough to occupy it, once Tarsus might have been a worthy prize, back before the cataclysm when the city was a seaport. After the fiery mountains struck, the sea departed, leaving Tarsus landlocked, its merchants bankrupt. She had no idea what Toad was thinking. The answer was he wasn't. Kittyara was on her feet, prepared to fly to Haven to try to put a stop to this, when she realized suddenly that she might be able to use this inane decision on the part of the Hob to her advantage. She recalled the date he'd given for the attack, a fortnight from now. She did not have much time, and there was a lot to be done, and done circumspectly. Not even Sky must suspect her true motives. She tucked the sheet of parchment with the names and descriptions of the assassins of Lord Verminard beneath her shirt, took a couple of swigs of dwarf spirits, to enable her to endure the freezing cold of the journey, and, bundled in furs, she gathered up her gear and went out to meet the dragon. "'Where are we bound?' Skye asked. He was in a hurry to leave. "'Thor Barden to fetch the blue wing,' said Kittyara. "'Then we're going to Tarsus.' Skye snaked his head around to stare at her. "'Tarsus? What are we doing in Tarsus?' "'I'll explain later,' Kit said." her voice resounding hollowly from inside the horned helm. Sky wanted to hear more about this crazy decision to bring the blue wing to Tarsus, but he decided to wait to discuss it someplace where his tail wasn't stuck to the ice. He spread his wings, wrenched his tail loose, gave a great leap off his powerful hind legs, and soared, thankfully, into the crystalline blue sky. Two. One. An Offering to Zebowim. Derek Quotes the Measure. Derek Crowngard and his fellow knights, Brian Donner and Aaron Tolbo, stood at the rail of a merchant ship, watching their entry into the harbor of Rigget, a port city located about seventy miles from Tarsus. The ship, known as the Marigold, named for the captain's daughter, had encountered fair weather and smooth seas the entire way. Aaron Talbot stood head and shoulders over his fellow knights. Aaron was a tall man, and he lived large, being jovial, good-natured, and fun-loving. He had sandy red hair, and his mustaches, the traditional mustaches of a Salomnic knight, were long and flowing. He was fond of a wee dram, as the dwarves say, and carried a small flask in a leather holder attached to his sword belt. 
Inside the flask was the finest brandy wine, which he sipped continually. He was never drunk, just always in a good humor. His laughter came from his belly and was as large as himself. He might seem an unlikely knight, but Aaron Talbo was a fierce warrior, his courage and skill in battle renowned. Not even Derek could fault him for that. As the ship sailed into the harbor of Rigget, the knights watched with amusement as the sailors offered up gifts of thanksgiving. The gifts ranged from necklaces made of shells to small wooden carvings of various monsters of the deep, all handmade by the sailors during the voyage. Chanting and singing their thanks for a safe journey, they tossed the gifts into the water. What is that word they keep repeating, sir? Aaron asked the captain. Sounds like Zeboim, Zeboim. That's it exactly, sir, said the captain. Zeboim, goddess of the sea. You should make an offering to her yourselves, my lords. She doesn't take kindly to being slighted. Despite the fact there has been no sign of this goddess for over three hundred years, Aaron asked with a wink at his friends. Just because we've heard no word from her nor seen a sign doesn't mean Zeboim's not keeping her eye on us, said the captain gravely. He leaned over the rail as he spoke to drop a pretty bracelet made of blue crystals into the green water. Thank you, Zeboim, he called out. Bless our journey home. Derek watched with stern disapproval. I can understand ignorant sailors believing in superstitious nonsense, but I can't believe that you, Captain, an educated man, take part in such a ritual. For one, my men would mutiny if I did not, my lord, said the Captain. And for another, he shrugged, it's better to be safe than sorry, especially where the sea witch is concerned. Now, if you gentlemen will excuse me, as we are coming into port, I have to attend to my duties. The knight stood beside the railing, observing the sights and sounds of the port. With winter fast closing in, the port was almost empty, except for the fishing vessels that braved all but the fiercest winter gales. Beg pardon, my lads, came a voice behind them. The three knights turned to see one of the sailors, bowing and bobbing to them. They knew this man well. He was the oldest aboard ship. He claimed to have been a sailor for sixty years, saying he had gone to sea as a lad at the age of ten. He was wizened and bent, his face burnt brown by the sun and wrinkled with age. He could still climb the ropes as fast as the young men, however. He could predict the coming of a storm by watching the way the gulls flew, and he claimed he could talk to dolphins. He had survived a shipwreck, saying he had been rescued from drowning by a beautiful sea elf. For you both, my lords, the old man said, gumming the words, for he was missing most of his teeth to scurvy. For to give to the sea witch. He held in his hands two carved wooden animals, and these he presented with a bob and a bow and a toothless grin to Aaron and Brian. What is it? Brian asked, examining the small, hand-carved wooden animal. It looks like a wolf, Aaron remarked. Yes, my lord, wolf, said the old man, touching his hand to his forehead. One for both. He pointed a gnarled finger first at Aaron, then to Brian. Give him to the sea witch, so she'll take kindly to you. Why wolves, old salt? Aaron asked. Wolves are not very sea-like. Wouldn't a whale suit her better? I was told wolves in a dream, said the old man, his shrewd eyes glinting. 
He pointed to the sea. Give them to the goddess. Ask her for her blessing. You do, and I'll bring you up on charges before the council, Derek stated. Derek was not noted for his sense of humor, but he did sometimes indulge in small, dry jokes. So dry and so small, they often went unnoticed. He might be teasing, but then again he might not. Brian couldn't tell. Not that it mattered with Aaron, who was quick to turn anything into a jest. You frighten me. What would be the charges, Derek? Aaron asked with mock concern. Idol worship, said Derek. Ha <laughs> ha! Aaron's laughter went rolling over the water. You're just jealous because you didn't get a wolf. Derek had kept to their cabin during the voyage, spending his time reading the copy of the measure he carried with him, making notations in the margins. He left the cabin only to take daily exercise on the deck, which meant that he walked up and down it for an hour or to dine with the captain. Aaron had roamed the deck from morning to night, mingling freely with the sailors, learning the ropes and dancing the hornpipe. He had undertaken to scramble up the rigging and had nearly broken his neck when he fell from the yardarm. Brian had spent most of his time at sea trying to restrain the high spirits of Aaron. So I just tossed this into the water, said Aaron to the old man, prepared to suit his actions to his words. Do I say a prayer? You do not, said Derek sternly. He reached out and plucked the wolf carving from Aaron's hand and gave it back to the old man. Thank you, mate, but these knights have their swords. They don't need a blessing. Derek looked pointedly at Brian, who, muttering his thanks, handed his wolf to the old man. Are you certain? Sure, my lads, the old man asked, eyeing them intently. His shrewd scrutiny made Brian uncomfortable, but before he could respond, Derek cut him off. We have no time for fairy tales, Derek said tersely. Gentlemen, we will be going ashore soon, and we have our packing to finish. He left the railing and went striding across the deck. You give it to the goddess for me, said Aaron to the old man, clapping him on the shoulder, with my thanks. Glancing back, Brian saw the old man still standing there, still watching them. Then the captain's voice rang out with an order to all hands to prepare to drop anchor. The old man tossed the wolf carvings overboard and dashed off to obey. Derek disappeared below decks, heading to the small cabin the three knights shared. Aaron followed after him, taking a pull from his flask as he went. Brian lingered to gaze out to sea. The breeze blew off the glacier that was far to the south and carried with it the nip of winter. The waves were sun-dappled gold on top. Blue below, the wind plucked at the hem of his cloak. Seabirds wheeled in the sky or bobbed up and down placidly on the surface of the water. Brian wished he'd taken the old man's wolf carving. He wished he'd made an offering to the sea goddess, whoever she was. He imagined her, beautiful and capricious, dangerous and deadly. Brian lifted his hand to salute her. Thank you for a safe voyage, my lady, he said, half mocking and half serious. Brian, Derek's irate voice echoed up from down below. Coming, Brian called. The knights did not stay long in Rigget. They hired horses for the journey north to Tarsus that would take them across the plains of dust. The road was still passable, though there had been snow up north around Thorbarden, or so Aaron heard from a drinking companion, a mercenary who had just traveled that route. He advised us not to stay inside Tarsus. 
Aaron told them, as they were loading supplies onto the horses. He suggests we make camp in the hills and enter the city during the day. He said we should keep the fact that we're knights of Salamnia to ourselves. The Tarsians have no love for us, it seems. The measure states a knight should walk openly in the sunshine, proudly proclaiming his nobility to the world, Derek quoted. And if the Tarsians toss us out of the city on our noble posteriors, what of our mission to find the dragon orb? asked Aaron, grinning. They won't toss us out. You have this information on the authority of some ragtag sellsword, said Derek disparagingly. The captain told me much the same, Derek, Brian said. Prior to the cataclysm, the knights made Tarsus a lord city of Salamnia, despite the fact that the city was hundreds of miles away. That way, the knights could protect the city from enemies. Then came the cataclysm, and the knights couldn't protect themselves, much less a city far from Salamnia. The knights who had lived in Tarsus, those who survived, returned to Palanthus, leaving the Tarsians to fight their battles alone. The Tarsians have never forgiven us for abandoning them, Brian concluded. Perhaps we could find a loophole. Aaron began. Brian shot him a warning glance, and Aaron, rubbing his nose, rephrased his suggestion. Perhaps the measure makes some provision for such a delicate political situation. You should be better versed in the measure, said Derek reprovingly. Otherwise, you would know what it says. We will not enter Tarsus under false pretenses. We will present our credentials to the proper authorities and receive their permission to enter the city. There will be no trouble if we behave honorably, whereas there would be trouble if we were caught sneaking into the city like thieves. <laughs> you make it sound like I'm suggesting we enter the city dressed in black with sacks over our heads, said Aaron, chuckling. There's no need to flaunt the fact that we're knights. We don't have to lie, just... Pack up our fancy tabards and the hand-tooled leather armor, replace our ornate helms with plain, take off the badges that mark our rank, remove our spurs, and wear ordinary, serviceable clothing. Maybe trim our mustaches. That last was absolutely the wrong thing to say. Derek did not even deign to respond. He made a final adjustment to the horse's bridle, then left to go settle the bill with the innkeeper. Aaron shrugged and reached for his flask. He took a couple of sips, then offered the flask to Brian, who shook his head. Derek does talk sense, Aaron, Brian argued. It might go badly for us if we were caught trying to hide our true identities. Besides, I can't imagine the Tarsians would still hate us after three hundred years. Aaron looked at him and smiled. That's because you can't imagine hating anyone, Brian. He sauntered over to look out the stable door. Then, seeing Derek was out of earshot, he returned to his friend. Do you know why Lord Gunther asked me to come on this mission? Brian could guess, but he didn't want to. Aaron, I don't think. I'm here to make certain Derek doesn't screw it up, Aaron said flatly. He took another drink. Brian winced at the crudeness of the expression. Derek's a knight of the rose, Aaron. He's your superior and mine, according to the measure— Piss on the measure, said Aaron sharply, his jovial mood evaporating. I'm not going to allow this mission to fail because Derek cares more about adhering to some moldy old code of antiquated laws than he does about saving our nation. 
Perhaps, without those laws and the noble tradition they represent, the nation wouldn't be worth saving, Brian remarked moodily. Aaron rested his hand affectionately on his friend's shoulder. You're a good man, Brian. So is Derek, said Brian earnestly. We've known him a long time, Aaron. We've both been his friends for years. True, said Aaron, shrugging again. And we've both seen how much he's hardened and changed. Brian sighed. Be patient with him, Aaron. He's suffered a lot. The loss of Castle, his brother's terrible death. I will be patient, said Aaron, up to a point. Now I'm going to indulge in a stirrup cup. Join me. Brian shook his head. Go on. I'll wait for Derek. Aaron mounted his horse and rode off to enjoy a final mug of ale and to refill his flask before starting out. Brian remained in the stable, adjusting the horse's bridle. Damn Aaron anyway. Brian wished Aaron hadn't told him the true reason he'd come. Brian didn't like to think Lord Gunther trusted Derek so little he'd set a friend to spy on him, and Brian didn't like hearing Aaron had accepted such a demeaning assignment. Knights did not spy on each other. That must be in the measure somewhere. If so, Derek didn't quote those parts, for he had his own spies in the court of Lord Gunther. Perhaps Derek's spies had told him that Aaron was a spy. Brian leaned his head against the horse's neck. He could almost believe Queen Tachesis had returned to the world, planting the seeds of discord among those who had once been the champions of honor and valor. The seeds had taken root in fear and were now flourishing into noxious weeds of hatred and mistrust. Where is Aaron? Derek's voice roused Brian from his dark reflections. He went to get some ale, Brian said. We're not on a Kender outing, Derek said grimly. He takes nothing seriously, and now I suppose we must go haul him out of some bar. Derek was wrong. They found Aaron, wiping foam from his mouth, waiting for them on the road that led to Tarsus. The three set out, with Aaron in the middle, Derek on his right, and Brian on his left. He recalled with sudden vividness another quest, their very first. Do you remember when the three of us were squires and we were tired of tilting at the quintain and whacking each other with wooden swords? We decided to prove ourselves, and so we decided to go to Nightland to seek the Death Knight. Aaron began to chuckle. By my soul, I had not thought of that in a long time. We rode three days into what we fancied was Nightland, though in truth we never got close, and then we came to that empty castle. It was deserted. The walls were cracked, the battlements crumbling. One of the towers was charred and burned, and we knew we'd found it. Dargard Keep, the accursed home of the dread Lord Soth. Aaron's chuckles turned to laughter. Do you remember what happened next? I'm not likely to forget, said Brian. I lost five years of my life that night. We camped out near the keep to keep watch on it, and sure enough, we saw a strange blue light flickering in one of the windows. <laughs> the blue light, Aaron guffawed. We girded on our armor that didn't fit us because it was stolen from our masters, Aaron recalled. All of us were scared out of our wits. <laughs> But we would none of us admit it, and so we went forth. Derek was our leader. 
Remember, Derek, you gave the signal and we charged inside. <laughs> Brian could barely speak for mirth. We were met by a dwarf who'd set up an illegal spirit distillery inside the keep. <laughs> Aaron roared with laughter. The blue light we saw was the fire cooking his mash. He thought we were there to steal his brew, and he came roaring at us from the shadows, waving that bloody great axe. He looked ten feet tall, I swear. <laughs> and we gallant knights ran off in three different directions, with him chasing after us, <laughs> shouting he was going to chop off our ears. Aaron was doubled over the pommel of his saddle. Brian was laughing so hard he could barely see. He wiped his streaming eyes and glanced over at Derek. The knight sat bolt upright on his horse. He gazed straight ahead, slightly frowning. Brian's laughter trailed off. Don't you remember that, Derek? he asked. No, said Derek. I don't. He spurred his horse to a gallop, making it clear he wanted to ride alone. Aaron brought out his flask, then fell into line behind Derek. Brian chose to bring up the rear. There were no more stories, no more laughter. As for singing songs of heroic deeds to enliven the journey, Brian tried to recall one, but found he couldn't. Singing would only annoy Derek anyway. The three rode north in silence as the gray clouds massed and the snow began to fall. 2. Abrupt End of a Peaceful Journey The Measure Reconsidered the journey to Tarsus was long, cold, and miserable. The wind blew incessantly across the plains of dust and was both a curse and a blessing, a curse in that its chill fingers plucked aside cloaks and jabbed through the warmest clothing, a blessing in that it kept the road clear of mounding snowdrifts. The knights had brought firewood with them, figuring there would be little chance of finding wood on the way. They did not have to make use of it, however— for they were invited to spend the first night with the nomads who lived in this harsh land. The plainsmen gave them shelter consisting of a hide tent and food for themselves and their horses. All this, yet they never spoke a word to them. The knights woke in the gray of dawn to find the plainsmen dismantling their tent around them. By the time the knights had made their morning ablutions, the nomads were ready to depart. Derek sent the affable Aaron to give the plainsmen their thanks. Very strange, Aaron commented on his return, as Brian and Derek were readying the horses. What is? Derek asked. The man we took for their leader seemed to be trying to tell me something. He kept pointing north and frowning and shaking his head. I asked him what he meant, but he didn't speak common or any other language I tried. He pointed north three times, then he turned and walked off. Perhaps the road to the north is blocked by snow, Brian suggested. Could be what he meant, I suppose, but I don't think so. It seemed more serious than that, as if he were trying to warn us of something bad up ahead. I was thinking to myself last night it was odd to find the plainsmen traveling this time of year, said Brian. Don't they usually make permanent camp somewhere during the winter months? Maybe they're fleeing something, said Aaron. They were in a hurry this morning, and the chief certainly looked grim. Who can tell what such savages do or why, said Derek dismissively. Still, we should be on our guard, Brian suggested. I am always on my guard, returned Derek.
The snow let up, and a freshening wind whisked away the clouds. The sun shone, warming them and making their journey more pleasant. At Derek's insistence, they still wore the accoutrements of knighthood, tabards marked with the rose, the crown, or the sword, depending on their rank, their ornate helms, tall boots with the spurs each had won, and fine woolen cloaks. They had covered many miles the day before, and hoped that by hard riding and stopping only long enough to rest the horses, they would reach Tarsus before nightfall. The day passed uneventfully. They did not find any places where the road was blocked. They met no other people, nor did they see signs anyone else had traveled this way. They gave up trying to puzzle out what the plainsmen had meant. Toward late afternoon, the clouds returned and the sun disappeared. The snow started, falling furiously for a time, then the squall lifted and the sun came back. This continued on the rest of the afternoon, the nights riding from patches of snow into patches of sunlight and back to snow, until the weather grew so confused, as Aaron quipped, they could see the snowflakes glitter in the sun. During one of the flurries, the knights topped a slight rise and found, on their way down, the vast expanse of the plains spread out before them. They could see bands of snow glide across the prairie, and during a break in one of the small storms, a walled city. The city disappeared in a sudden burst of blowing snow, but there was no doubt that it was Tarsus. The sight cheered them, as did the thought of an inn with a blazing fire and hot food. Aaron had said no more about camping in the hills, the captain of the ship recommended an inn known as the Red Dragon, Brian said. Not exactly a propitious name, Aaron remarked dryly. You can throw salt over your shoulder and turn around in a circle thirteen times before you go inside, said Derek. Aaron looked at him in astonishment. Then he caught Derek's smile. The smile was stiff, as if not much used, but he was smiling. I'll do that, Aaron said, grinning. Brian breathed a sigh of relief, glad to feel the tension between them ease. They rode on, climbing yet another gentle rise. Topping this one, they saw ahead of them a deep, rock-strewn gully spanned by a wooden bridge. The knights halted as a sudden snow squall enveloped them in white, obscuring their vision. When the snow lessened and they could see the bridge again, Aaron started to urge his horse forward. Derek raised a warding hand. Hold a moment, he said. Why? Aaron halted. Did you see something? I thought I did, before that last squall. I saw people moving on the other side of the bridge. No one there now, said Aaron, rising in his saddle and gazing ahead. I can see for myself, said Derek. That's what bothers me. This would be a good place for an ambush, observed Brian, loosening his sword in its scabbard. We could find another place to cross, Aaron suggested. He was one of the few knights skilled in archery, and he reached for the bow he wore slung on his back. They've seen us. If we turn back, it will look suspicious. Besides, Derek added coolly, I'd like to see who is lurking about this bridge and why. Maybe it's trolls, Aaron said, grinning, recalling the old child's tale. And we're the billy goats. Derek pretended he hadn't heard. The bridge is narrow. We'll have to cross in single file. I will go first. Keep close behind me. No weapons, Aaron. Let them think we haven't seen them. Derek waited until another flurry of snow descended on them, then touched his horse lightly on the flanks and started forward at a slow pace. As his horse reached the bridge, 
Aaron said in a low voice, It's only I, Billy Goat Gruff. Derek half turned in the saddle. Damn it, Aaron, be serious for once. Aaron only laughed and urged his horse forward, falling in behind Derek. Brian, keeping watch over his shoulder, brought up the rear. The knights rode slowly across the bridge. Though the snow concealed them, the horses' hooves clattered on the wooden planks, effectively announcing their coming. They kept their ears stretched, but could hear nothing. Brian, peering behind them through the intermittent flurries, saw no one following them. He might have concluded Derek was jumping at shadows, but he knew the man too well for that. Derek might be a prize ass at times, but he was an excellent soldier, intuitive and keenly observant. Even Aaron, though he'd joked about billy goats, was not joking now. He had his hand on his sword's hilt and was keeping close watch. Derek was about halfway across the bridge. Aaron was coming along behind him, his horse clattering over the wooden slats, and Brian's horse was behind Aaron's, when three strangers— suddenly reared up out of the snow and began walking toward them. The strangers were enveloped in long cloaks that trailed over the snowy ground. They kept their hoods drawn over their heads, making it impossible to see their faces. Large leather gloves covered their hands, and they wore heavy boots. Whoever they were, the horses didn't like them. Derek's horse snorted and laid back its ears. Aaron's horse danced sideways, while Brian's nervously backed and shied. Well met, fellow travelers, one of the strangers called out as he ambled toward the bridge. Where are you bound in such foul weather? Brian stirred in the saddle. The stranger spoke common well enough and was trying to sound friendly, but Brian tensed. He had detected a faint sibilant hissing at the end of the word travelers. Thus might a draconian speak the word and draconians had been known to try to disguise their scaly bodies in long cloaks with hoods. Brian wondered if his companions had heard the hiss, too, and if they were likewise on their guard. He didn't dare to turn to look at them, or act as if anything was out of the ordinary. Then Aaron, riding ahead of him, said softly in Salamnik, Not trolls, lizards. Brian shifted his hand beneath his cloak to grasp the hilt of his sword, Derek eyed the strangers warily, then said, Since we are on the road to Tarsus, and that city lies directly ahead of us, it would seem safe to say that Tarsus is where we are bound. Mind if we ask you a few questions? The draconian inquired, still friendly. Yes, we do, said Derek. Now stand aside and let us cross. We're looking for some people the draconian continued, as if he hadn't heard. We have a message for them from our master. Brian caught movement out of the corner of his eye. A fourth draconian was off to the side of the road, half hidden behind a signpost. Hooded and cloaked like the others, the draconian was far shorter than his three companions. He was moving about inside his cloak, and Brian thought perhaps the creature was about to draw a weapon. Instead, the draconian brought forth a document of some sort, the creature consulted the document, then called out something to his comrades and shook his head. The leader glanced over at the draconian with the paper and then, shrugging, said affably, My mistake. A good journey to you gentlemen, and turned to walk off. The knights stared at each other. Keep riding, Derek ordered. The knights rode on. 
Derek's horse made it across the bridge, and Aaron's was close behind when a gust of wind swirled down the gully, seized the corner of Derek's cape, and blew it back over his shoulder. The rose of his order, embroidered on his tabard, flared bright red, the only color in the white snow-covered landscape. Salamnix, the word hissed from the short, squat draconian by the signpost. Kill them! The draconians whipped around. They flung back their cloaks, revealing themselves as Boz draconians, the foot soldiers of the dragon armies. Snatching off their gloves, they drew long, curved-bladed swords. Their bodies might be covered in scales, and they held their weapons in clawed hands, but they were fierce and intelligent fighters, as the three knights had reason to know, for they had fought against them in Vingard and at Castle Crownguard. Sword in hand, Derek spurred his horse directly at the lead draconian, trusting that the beast's stamping hooves would force the attacking draconian to retreat or be trampled. Unfortunately, Derek's horse was a hired nag, not a trained warhorse. The horse was terrified by this strange-smelling lizard man, and it reared back on its hind legs, whinnying frantically and nearly dumping Derek out of the saddle. Derek struggled to calm the horse and keep his seat, and for the moment he could pay attention to little else. Seeing one knight in trouble, a draconian came at him, sword raised. Aaron rode his horse between Derek's plunging steed and his attacker. Slashing at the draconian with his sword, Aaron cut the monster across the face. Blood sprayed. A large chunk of bloody flesh sagged loose from the creature's jaw. The draconian hissed in pain, but he kept coming and tried to jab the curved-bladed sword into Aaron's thigh. Aaron kicked at the blade with his booted foot and knocked it from the draconian's hand. Brian spurred his horse off the bridge, heading to block off the third draconian, who was running to join the others. As he rode, he kept an eye on the short, squat draconian near the signpost and saw in amazement that the creature appeared to be growing. Then Brian realized the draconian was not growing. He was merely standing upright. A Bozak draconian, he had been squatting comfortably on his haunches. Now he rose up to his full seven-foot height. The Bozak did not reach for a weapon. He lifted his voice in a chant and raised his hands, fingers extended toward Aaron. Brian bellowed, Aaron, duck! Aaron did not waste time asking why, but flung himself forward, pressing against his horse's neck. An eerie pinkish light flared through the falling snow. Balls of fire shot from the draconian's fingers. The missiles whistled harmlessly over Aaron's back, showering sparks as they passed. Shouting challenges, Brian drew his sword and galloped his horse toward the Bozak, hoping to stop the creature from casting another spell. He heard behind him the clash of steel and Derek yelling something, but Brian did not dare lose sight of his enemy long enough to see what was happening. The Bozak coolly ignored Brian. The Draconian did not believe he was in any danger, and Brian realized there must be a good reason for this. Brian looked about. The Draconian was running alongside his horse, ready to spring at him and try to drag him to the ground. Brian made an awkward backhanded slash with his sword, and he must have hit the draconian, for blood spurted, and the creature dropped out of sight. Brian tried to stop his horse's forward motion, but the beast was terrified by the smell of blood and the shouts and the fighting, and was completely out of control. Wild-eyed, spittle-flying, the horse carried Brian closer to the Bozak. The draconian raised his clawed hands, fingers splayed, pointing at Brian. Brian flung his sword into the snow and leaped off the maddened horse, hurling himself at the Bozak. 
Brian slammed into the draconian, taking the Bozak completely by surprise. The fiery missiles shot off in all directions. The Bozak, arms flailing wildly, toppled over backward with Brian on top of him. Brian scrambled to his feet. The Bozak, jarred by the fall, was fumbling for his sword. Brian snatched the knife at his belt and stabbed it with all his strength into the Bozak's throat. The draconian gurgled and choked as blood welled around the knife, and the creature glared at him in fury that rapidly dimmed as death took him. Remembering just in time that Bozaks were as dangerous dead as they were alive, Brian shouted a warning to his friends, then turned and hurled himself as far from the creature as he could manage. He landed belly first on the snow-covered ground, bruising his ribs on a rock, just as an explosion sent a wave of heat washing over him. He lay still a moment, half stunned by the blast, then looked back. The Bozak was charred bones, smoldering flesh, and fragments of armor. Aaron, swearing loudly, stood over his dead foe, trying to wrench free his sword encased in the stony statue that had been a Boz. Aaron gave his sword a mighty yank. The stone crumbled to ash, and he nearly went over backward. He caught his balance, and still swearing, wiped blood from a cut on his chin. Anyone hurt? Derek called out. He stood beside his shivering horse. His sword was wet with blood. A pile of ashes lay at his feet. Aaron grunted in response. Brian was looking about for his horse, only to see it galloping madly across the plains heading for home. He whistled and shouted, all in vain. The horse paid no heed, kept running. There goes my gear, Brian exclaimed in dismay. The rest of my armor, food, my clothes. He'd been wearing his breastplate and helm, but he was sorry to lose the remainder, greaves and bracers, gloves. Shaking his head, Brian bent to retrieve his sword and saw the document the Bozak had been consulting lying in the snow. The draconian must have tossed it down in order to concentrate on his spellcasting. Curious, Brian picked it up. What in the abyss are draconians doing, camped out by a bridge in the snow? Aaron demanded. This doesn't make any sense. Ambushing travelers makes sense for them, said Derek. They weren't going to ambush us. They were going to let us go until they saw that bright red rose of yours and realized we were Salamnic knights, Aaron returned. Bah! They would have jumped us from behind no matter what, said Derek. I'm not so sure, said Brian, rising to his feet, the document in his hand. I think they're bounty hunters. I saw the Bozak consulting this as we rode up. He saw that we didn't match the descriptions, and he ordered the Boz to let us go. The document contained a list of names, accompanied by descriptions and amounts to be paid in reward for their capture. Tannis Half-Elven was the first name on the list. Flint Fireforge was another, with the word Dwarf written alongside. There was a Kender, Tasselhoff Burfoot, two elves, a wizard, Raislin Majer, and a man listed as a cleric of Paladine. And look at this, Brian indicated a name, an old friend of ours, Sturm Brightblade. Beside his name was written Salomnic Knight. Ha! Huh. Brightblade is not a knight, said Derek, frowning. Aaron looked at him in astonishment. Who cares if he's a knight or not? He jabbed at the document. This is why the Draconians were keeping a watch on this bridge. They were looking for these people, one of whom happens to be a friend of ours and a Salomnic. 
A friend of yours, perhaps, said Derek. Bright Blade is no friend of mine. I don't think we should stand here arguing, Brian pointed out. There could be more draconians around. Tarsus might have fallen into enemy hands, for all we know. Folding the paper carefully, he thrust it into his belt. Not likely, said Derek. We would have heard news of that in Rigget, and these draconians were in disguise. If they were in control of Tarsus, they would be swaggering about letting everyone know they were in charge. They were here in secret, acting on their own. Or on orders from their master, Aaron commented. Did you notice they were wearing blue insignia like the draconians that attacked us in Salamnia? That is odd, come to think of it, Brian said. According to reports, the red wing of the dragon army is nearer to Tarsus than the blue. Blue or red, they're all our foes, and Brian is right, said Derek. We have already been here too long. Brian, you ride with Aaron. His horse is the largest and strongest. We'll transfer his gear to my horse. They shifted the saddlebags from Aaron's horse to Derek's. Then Aaron mounted and pulled Brian up behind him. Brian's horse had long since disappeared. Aaron and Brian started to canter off down the road. Where are you going? Derek demanded. Tarsus, said Aaron, halting. Where else? I don't think we should enter Tarsus openly, said Derek. Not until we know more about what is going on. You mean not announce our noble presence? Aaron exclaimed in mock horror. I'm shocked, Derek, shocked that you would even suggest such a thing. I may never recover. He drew out his flask and took a consoling drink. Derek gave him an angry look and did not answer. Brian glanced at the sky. The clouds were swirling, gray over white. A pale light gleamed from beneath them. If the clouds cleared, the night would be frigid. Where do we go? he asked. According to the map, there is wooded hill country west of Tarsus. We'll camp there for the night, keep watch on the city, and decide what to do in the morning. Derek turned his horse's head striking off across the plains. Aaron, chuckling to himself, followed along behind him. <laughs> Interesting to see Bright Blade's name on a bounty list, Aaron said to Brian. And keeping strange company from the looks of it, elves, dwarves, and the like. I suppose that's what comes of living in a crossroads town like Solace. I've heard it's a wild place. Did he ever say anything to you about his life there? No, he never discussed it. But then Sturm was always a very private man. He rarely spoke about himself at all. He was more concerned about his father. Too bad about that. Aaron sighed. I wonder what sort of trouble Sturm's in now. Whatever it is, he's in this part of Ancelon. Either that or someone thinks he is, said Brian. I'd like to see Brightblade again. He's a good man, despite what some think. Aaron cast a dour glance at Derek. I don't suppose it's likely, though. You never know who you'll meet on the road these days, said Brian. That's true enough, Aaron stated, laughing, and he dabbed at his chin to see if it was still bleeding. The three knights spent a cold and cheerless evening huddled around a fire in a shallow cave in the hills above Tarsus. The snowstorm had blown itself out and the night was clear, with both Solinari and Lunatari shedding silver and red light. From their camp, the knights could see one of the main gates, 
closed and barred until morning. Guards manned the walls, pacing off the watch in slow, measured tread. The city was dark. Most people were in their beds. The city seems quiet enough, said Brian, when Aaron came to relieve him, taking his turn at watch. Yeah, and draconians not ten miles from here, said Aaron, shaking his head. The knights were up early to see the gates open. No one was waiting to enter, and only a few people departed, mostly Kender being escorted out of town. Those who left took the road to Riggett. The gate guards remained in their towers, venturing out into the cold only when forced to do so by someone wanting admittance. The guards walking the battlements did so in bored fashion, pausing often to warm themselves at fires burning in large iron braziers and to chat companionably. Tarsus was the picture of a city at peace with itself and all the world. If Draconians were watching for these people on a bridge leading to Tarsus, you can bet they're also keeping an eye out for them in Tarsus itself, said Brian. They'll have someone lurking about near the gates. Aaron winked at Brian. So, Derek, are we going to march into Tarsus wearing full knightly regalia and carrying banners with the Kingfisher and the Rose? Derek looked very grim. I have consulted the measure, he said, bringing out the well-worn volume. It states that fulfillment of a quest of honor undertaken by a knight with sanction from the council should be the knight's first priority. If the fulfillment of the quest of honor requires that the knight conceal his true identity, succeeding at the quest takes precedence over the duty of the knight to proudly proclaim his allegiance. You lost me somewhere around precedence and fulfillment, said Aaron. In words of one syllable, Derek, do we disguise ourselves or not? According to the measure, we may disguise ourselves without sacrificing our honor. Aaron's lips twitched. He caught Brian's warning glance, however, and swallowed his glib comment along with a gulp from the flask. The knights spent the rest of the day removing all their badges and insignia. They cut the embroidered decorations from their clothes and stowed away their armor in the back of the cave. They would wear their swords— and Aaron would keep his bow and quiver of arrows. Weapons were not likely to cause comment, for no one went forth unarmed these days. All that's left of our knighthood is our mustaches, said Aaron, tugging at his. Well, we're certainly not going to shave, Derek said sternly. Our mustaches will grow back, Derek, Aaron said. No, Derek was adamant. We will pull our hoods low and wrap scarves around our heads. As cold as it is, no one will pay any attention. Aaron rolled his eyes, but he accepted the ruling meekly, much to Derek's surprise. You owe, Derek, said Brian, as he and Aaron were arranging the screen of brush over the cave. Aaron grinned sheepishly. The knight's long, luxurious red mustache was his secret pride. I guess I do. I would have shaved my mustache, mind you, but it would have been like cutting off my sword arm. Don't tell Derek, though. I'd never hear the end of it. Brian shrugged. It seems strange to me that we risk imperiling our mission for the sake of some fuzz on our upper lips. This is not to be termed fuzz, said Aaron severely, fondly smoothing his mustache. Besides, it might actually look worse if we shaved. Our faces are tanned from the sea voyage, and the white skin on our lips would look very suspicious, whereas if we don't shave, well... 
I'm sure we won't be the only men in Tarsus with mustaches. They decided to enter the city separately, their reasoning being that three armed men entering alone would cause less stir than three trying to enter together. They would meet at the library of Cristan, though we have no idea where this library is or how to find it, Aaron remarked lightly, nor do we know what it is we're looking for once we get there. Nothing I like better than a well-organized fiasco. Bundled in their cloaks, their hoods pulled low and scarves wrapped around their faces from nose to neck, Aaron and Brian watched Derek ride down out of the hills, heading for the main city gate. I don't see what we could do differently, Brian said. Aaron shifted restlessly in his saddle. His customary cheerfulness had left him suddenly, leaving him moody and edgy. What's wrong? Brian asked. Your flask empty? Yes, but that's not it. Aaron returned gloomily. He shifted again on his saddle, glancing around behind him. There's a bad feel to the air. Don't you notice it? The winds change direction, if that's what you mean, said Brian. Not that. More like a goose walking across my grave. Only in this case the goose has built a nest on it and hatched goslings. I felt the same way before the attack on Castle Crownguard. You'd better go, if you're going, Aaron added abruptly. Brian hesitated. He regarded his friend with concern. He'd seen Aaron in all sorts of moods, from wild to reckless to merry. He'd never seen him in a black mood like this. Go on, Aaron waved his hand as though he were shooing the aforementioned geese. I'll meet you in the library that was probably destroyed three hundred years ago. That isn't funny, Brian growled over his shoulder as he walked down the hill, heading for the gates of Tarsus. Sometimes I'm not, said Aaron quietly. 3. The Bargain The Library of Cristan Before the Cataclysm, Tarsus had been known as Tarsus the Beautiful. When she looked into her mirror, she saw reflected there a city of culture and refinement, wealth, beauty, and charm. She spent money lavishly, and she had money to spend, for ships brought rich cargoes to her ports and laid them at her feet. Lush gardens of flowering plants adorned her like jewels. Knights, lords, and ladies walked her tree-lined streets. Scholars came from hundreds of miles away to study at her library, for Tarsus was not only elegant and refined and lovely, she was learned, too. She looked out over her glittering bay and saw nothing but joy and happiness on her horizon.